Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blind and printed paired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Okay, so we're going to start off with uh, an obituary from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. Marshall B. Grossman, March 24, 1939 to September 30, 2023, author unknown. Marshall Bruce Grossman passed away on September 30, 2023, after a courageous 10-year battle with Parkinson's disease. He is survived by Marlene, his wife of 61 years, children Roger and Leslie, grandchildren Sophia, Goldie, and Max, and his sister Phyllis Rubin, her family, and a large extended family. Marshall was born in Omaha, Nebraska on March 24, 1939, and moved to Los Angeles in 1943 when his father became the director of the Hollywood USO. Marshall attended Fairfax High School, UCLA, and USC Law School, class of 64, where he graduated Order of the Coif. Upon graduation from law school, Marshall talked his way into a job at the Beverly Hills law firm of Weber, Schwartz, and Alshuler. Soon after joining the firm, he filed one of the first consumer class action lawsuits in the U.S. against the Playboy Club. Despite his youth and well-funded established defense attorneys, Marshall won the case. A career was born. He stayed with the firm for more than 40 years, and in 2013, he joined Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. He retired in January 2020. During his career, Marshall earned a reputation as a brilliant litigator. His success in the courtroom quickly made him a highly sought-after, nationally recognized trial lawyer. He specialized in prosecuting and defending complex, high-stakes, bet-the-company litigation. He represented such diverse companies as Apple Computer, the Los Angeles Dodgers, Grupo Televisa, and Estee Lauder, and celebrities such as Steven Spielberg, J.K. Rowling, and Clint Eastwood. Profiled in the Best Lawyers in America, Marshall was twice selected by the National Law Journal as one of the top 10 trial lawyers in the country. His passion for the law was matched by his passion to give back to the community. He served the state of California first as a member of the California Coastal Commission and later as a commissioner on the California Commission on Judicial Performance. He was on a, law, on a number of boards, including the United Way and the Legal Aid Society. His real passion was the Jewish community and Israel. A leading activist on behalf of descendants in the former Soviet Union, he chaired the Concerned Lawyers for Soviet Jewry for 15 years, during which time he made several trips to the former Soviet Union to advocate on the descendants' behalf. For many years, he co-chaired the annual Chabad Telethon, as well as serving on boards including Bet Zedek Legal Services, Jewish Big Brothers, and the American Jewish Committee. Marshall was laid laid to rest in a private service at Hillside Memorial Park, attended by his immediate family. His full, meaningful life will be celebrated at a later date at Temple Israel of Hollywood. If you wish to make a donation of Marshall's memory, please consider contributing to organizations that help Israel and those directly impacted by violence. Organizations such as AJC's Israel Emergency Campaign, Isra Aid, New Israel Fund, Emergency Response Efforts, and the Jewish Federations of North America. 
That was Marshall P. Grossman, March 24, 1939 to September 30, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 22, 2023. All right, back to Israel. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 9, 2023. Jewish diaspora in L.A. mourns. Fear and helplessness gripped community on what was originally a celebratory weekend by Aileen Chekmedian and Rebecca Ellis. When Sharon Farber turned her phone back on after seeing a play with her daughter Saturday, frantic WhatsApp messages poured in from the other side of the world. Her sister in Israel told her that she and other relatives were hiding in, a bomb, in bomb shelters because the country was under attack. Terrified and unable to work or sleep, Farber spent the day and night on the phone, calling and texting family and uh, friends and scrolling through the news. Here, you're so far away, said Farber, a film composer and the music director for Beverly Hills Temple of the Arts. There's nothing you can do except for lose your mind from worry. Those feelings of fear and helplessness were echoed by many Sunday in Los Angeles's Jewish community, which was reeling from the deadliest attack in Israel in decades during what was supposed to be a holiday weekend of celebration. By Sunday afternoon, more than 1,100 Israelis and Palestinians were reported dead as Israel mounted a relentless counterattack to the surprise assault by Hamas militants, raising the specter of a protracted war. Among the dead, Farber had learned, was the son of a longtime friend. With a death toll so large in an area so small, you will know someone who's no longer with us, wounded or kidnapped, Farber said. The lack of power to do something to help is really hard, she said. The Los Angeles area, Mary, Mayor Karen Bass noted, is home to the second largest Jewish population outside of Israel. Streets in the Pico-Robertson neighborhood would normally be shut down this weekend for parties in honor of Simchat Torah, the Jewish holiday marking the completion of the annual cycle of the reading of the Torah. But this year, the mood was somber as police stepped up security in Jewish and Muslim communities alike. It will forever be a day of a memorial and sadness, said Rebecca Wisman, standing outside of Pico-Robertson Pico Boulevard Synagogue. It's supposed to be the happiest day of the year. She and three others were discussing who they knew preparing to fly to Israel to fight. Bathsheba Pinto said many people from her congregation were headed there. So was her brother-in-law. For two days, Wisman said everyone she knew had been operating in an inform information vacuum. Because of the holidays, they hadn't been able to check their phones since Friday, since Friday night. Wisman said she was dreading Sunday evening when she would once again be able to go online and read the latest headlines. She assumed the death toll had mounted. She was scared to learn by how much. We're not looking forward to it, she said. We want to know our people are okay, but we know they're not. They're telling us no matter what you do, don't watch the videos, said another member of the group, David Abizas. But Rabbi David Barron of Beverly Hills Temple of the Arts, watching the attacks unfold, reminded him of 9-11. As the hours continued, we got to understand more and more of the scope of what had happened, he said. It became clear this was not just simple one-of act of terrorism, but a coordinated and organized invasion and attack. Over the weekend, he spoke with his cousins in Jerusalem 
friends in Tel Aviv, and others he'd seen when he visited Israel twice this summer for two weddings and four bar mitzvahs. They'll emphasize how the scale and scope of this attack was just massive and bold, said Barron 72, no mercy shown to anyone. One of Barron's friends had taken his two young daughters to Cyprus for the holiday while his wife stayed behind to care for her mom. She said she was staying close to where her missile struck. She said to her husband, I'm very glad you took the girls. They would be so traumatized by this, he said. With flights into the country halted, Barron said, they can't yet travel back to Israel. Yossi Ziff walked down Pico Boulevard on Sunday, still teary-eyed from the morning service at the synagogue down the road. Two years ago, Ziff said, he moved from Pico Robertson to the Israeli city of Modi'in. He was back in Los Angeles last week visiting his grandchildren and was just stepping into the synagogue Saturday morning when he heard about the attacks. Everyone he spoke, he's spoken with back home is physically okay, he said, but reeling from the same emotions as him. Pain, sadness, concerned about friends, he said. The country is in shock. Ziff said the congregation was clearly in mourning. He was not the only one who sat through the service with tears in his eyes, but he said they were determined to make it in the make it the kind of holiday it was supposed to be, one of jubilation. I went and celebrated with joy, in spite of the sadness of what has happened, he said. Not everyone could stomach celebrating. It's hard. It's our duty to celebrate, said Nathan Pazuki, 29, but I don't know how. Across the street, a group holding a Torah had just broken out in jubilant chanting. Many probably did not yet know the scope of the carnage. There's a lot of people, bless their hearts, a lot of them don't know the extent of what's happening, Pazuki said. In Anaheim's Little Arabia neighborhood, much of the fear and uncertainty that gripped Pico Robertson was just as evident. Arif Mohammed, owner of Al Baraka restaurant, said Saturday that he was calling his siblings in Gaza to nearly every hour to make sure they were safe. At a nearby table, a Palestinian man, Nazeh, said the Israelis and U.S. governments were partly to blame for the tragedy after failing to find a peaceful solution to the long-running conflict. People in the Gaza Strip live in a big prison, said Nazeh, who asked to withhold his last name for fear that his business could face retaliation. It's a human tragedy on both sides. Killing children is a tragedy. Innocent people are getting crushed. Sitting on a ledge Sunday outside Chabad Persian Youth Center in Pico Robertson, Jay Israel said his heart broke for the hundreds of innocent Israelis and Palestinians who would die as a result of the latest bout of fighting. The leaders are safe. The civilians are getting killed, he said. When they drop the bombs, the missiles, both sides get hurt. Any war is the worst thing, he said. That was Jewish Diaspora in L.A. Mourns by Aileen Tekmedian and Rebecca Ellis from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 9, 2023. Time staff writers James Quilly and staff photographer Irfan Khan contributed to this report. All right, and here is something from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20, 2023. No war crimes in our name, Jewish protesters say in L.A. About 50 people gather outside Vice President's home by Summer Lynn and Andrew J. Kampa. Since this month's attacks on Israel by Hamas militants, thousands of protesters have taken to Los Angeles' streets waving Israeli and Palestinian flags and at times sparking tense confrontations. On Thursday, 
As Israel continued its bombardment of the Gaza Strip, a smaller group tried to bridge the bitter divide by taking their pleas of, uh, for peace to Vice President Kamala Harris's Brentwood home. Led by progressive activists and for Palestinian rights, about 50 people pulled up in cars outside Harris's home in the quiet West Side enclave around 7.20 a.m. and walked to the front gate holding signs that read, Jews say cease fire now and no war crimes in our name. They prayed, sang, and read poetry. Speaking Hebrew, they recited the Mourner's Kaddish, a Jewish prayer praising God to mark the death of a loved one. The peaceful demonstration at the home of Harris and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff, who is Jewish, was organized by, if not now, a left-leaning group of American Jews calling for the end of U.S. support for Israel's apartheid system, according to the group's website. Harris was in Washington, according to a White House news guidance about uh, uh, news guidance about her Thursday schedule. Representatives for Harris and Emhoff did not respond to requests for comment. We are outside of the outside the house of Kamala Harris and Douglas Emhoff, asking them to join us in demanding a ceasefire," said if not now LA organizer David Shapiro, who led chants and prayers of peace. We are American Jews with ancestors around the world. We honor a tradition rooted in the belief that human life is sacred. To achieve genuine safety for ourselves as Jews, for Israelis, and for Palestinians, we need to work together toward equality and justice for all and an end to apartheid. Speakers called on Harris and Emhoff to advocate for a ceasefire at one point chanting, Join us, Doug. Some organizers wearing neon green vests helped to make sure traffic was not blocked on the two-way street. Some drivers slowed to hear, to hear the message chanting in favor of Israel and others honked horn, car horns shouting and pumped their fists. Two men in separate vehicles called the protesters terrorists before driving away. A Times reporter on the scene heard a Los Angeles Police Department start to tell protesters not to stretch police resources by having officers arrest people. No order for the crowd to disperse was given and the demonstration ended around 11 a.m. with no arrests or violence. Organizer Noah Catler Kupetz, who said she grew up right around the corner from Harris's home, told the crowd that the event was a huge win for us. My feeling after this is that our work here is not done, she said. We have to make it clear to all our elected officials, our local leaders in Los Angeles, and the leaders of our country like Kamala Harris, that there needs to be an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The Brentwood demonstration was a continuation of recent protests by Jewish activists who opposed Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories and the airstrikes on Gaza as the death toll soars. On Capitol Hill, hundreds of demonstrators organized by If Not Now and another progressive group, Jewish Voice for Peace, were arrested Wednesday after rallying inside a congressional building to demand a ceasefire. They were, they were, three were accused of assault on a police officer, according to the U.S. Capitol Police. While well, 500 Jews, rabbis, and descendants of Holocaust survivors chant, let Gaza live, and get arrested inside a crowd of 10,000 things outside, Jewish Voice for Peace posted on social media, plat- uh, social media platform X, formerly Twitter, we won't stop until our demands of a ceasefire are met. Israel has declared war and continue to bomb and seal off the Gaza Strip, which Hamas controls, ever since Hamas militants attacked 
southern Israel on October 7, killing more than 1,400 Israels and taking at least 100 hostages into Gaza. At least 3,785 Palestinians, including 1,524 children and 120 older people, have been killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza as of Thursday, and at least 12,493 have been wounded, according to the Hamas-controlled Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. About half of Gaza's population, mounting to about a million Palestinians, have fled their homes in the north after being told to evacuate by Israeli officials. Israeli airstrikes continued across Gaza on Thursday, including in southern areas that were deemed safe zones by Israel. Israel has also cut off all water, power, and medical supplies into Gaza, exacerbating an existing blockade of the region. Limited humanitarian aid will be allowed from Egypt into Gaza at the request of President Biden. Biden is expected to request $10 billion in military aid to Israel from Congress in the coming days, according to media reports. Biden has already pledged $100 million in humanitarian aid to Gaza and the West Bank. Harris told reporters last week, in the wake of the Hamas attack, that she was completely outraged by the extreme acts of terrorism. A few days after the Hamas attack, Emhoff spoke at a roundtable at the White House without other Jewish community leaders. With other Jewish community leaders, we witnessed a mass murder of innocent civilians. It was a terrorist assault, he told the audience, and there is never any justification for terrorism. There are no two sides to this issue. On Wednesday, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. United Nations resolution sponsored by Brazil to condemn all violence against civilians in the war, citing the need to find out more facts on the ground first. The resolution had broad support, with 12 out of the 15 members of the Security Council voting in favor, Russia and Britain abstaining, and the U.S. voting against it. If not now, volunteer Asher Kaplan said that as the violence mounts, Despair has been building within the Jewish community for the last few weeks. One of Kaplan's childhood friends was nearly killed in Hamas in the Hamas attack. Yet, he said, those feelings of grief and anguish should not be used as a justification for mass killing. We know that the indiscriminate killing of Palestinian civilians being conducted by Israel as we speak and supported by the United States government will not make Jews safe, Kaplan said. Brentwood resident Michael Cohen bristled when he saw a Jewish activist wearing the traditional Palestinian kafia while holding a banner reading, Jews say cease fire now. Okay, cease fire, and then what? said Cohen, who was in his mid-forties, as he watched the protest after dropping off his three kids at a nearby elementary school. The bombing in Gaza was to eradicate Hamas and not Palestinians, he said. The point is what will be done with Hamas. And something needs to be done with Hamas before we can talk about peace, he said. Another Brentwood resident, Lydia Sorrentino, 53, went to Thursday's protest out of curiosity. She had just dropped off her first grade son at nearby Kenter Canyon Elementary Charter School and pulled her car over near the gates of Harris's home. The commotion came as a surprise to her. This is usually a very quiet neighborhood. I think this is the first time we've had something like this, she said. I had to see what was happening. Although Sorrentina was aware of the Israel-Hamas war, she said she didn't really understand the issue. That's why I'm here, to hear what's being said and what the protest is about, she said. 
Sorrentino pulled out her phone to record a couple of speeches and then headed back to her car and home. I have a lot to learn, she said. And that was No War Crimes in Our Name, Jewish Protesters Say in L.A. by Summer Lynn and Andrew J. Campa from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, October 20, 2023. All right, continuing from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20, 2023. Gaza awaits aid as Israel readies its ground forces. Airstrikes resume across the Palestinian territory, which is to receive food and medicine via Egypt. By Najib, Jobain, Samaya Kulab, and Ravi Nesman. Khan Yunus, Gaza Strip. Israeli airstrikes pounded locations across the Gaza Strip on Thursday, including parts of the south where Israeli, Israel told Palestinians to take refuge as logistics continue to be worked out for a delivery of humanitarian aid into the territory through Egypt. The Israeli military has relentlessly attacked Gaza in retaliation for a devastating Hamas rampage in southern Israel almost two weeks ago, in which hundreds of civilians were slaughtered. Even after Israel told Palestinians to evacuate from, the, from northern Gaza and flee south, strikes have extended across the seaside enclave while Palestinian militants continued firing rockets into Israel. Israel has said it is attacking Hamas militants wherever they may be in Gaza. Meeting with Israeli infantry soldiers in the Gaza border Thursday, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant urged the forces to get organized, be ready for an order to move in. Israel has massed tens of thousands of troops along the border. Whoever sees Gaza from afar now, I will see it from the inside, he said. I promise you. A residential building in Khan Yunus, a city in southern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians had taken shelter, was among the places hit overnight. Medical personnel at Nasser Hospital said they received at least 12 dead and 40 wounded. The bombardments came after Israel agreed Wednesday to allow Egypt to deliver food, water, and medicine to Gaza, the first crack in a punishing 11-day siege. Many among Gaza's 2.3 million residents have cut down to one meal a day and resorted to drinking dirty water. The UN brokered deal to get aid into Gaza through Rafah, the territory's only connection to Egypt, remained fragile. Israel said that supplies could only go to civilians in southern Gaza and that it would thwart any diversions by Hamas. President Biden said the deliveries will end if Hamas takes any aid. More than 200 trucks and about 3,000 tons of aid were positioned at or near Rafah, according to Khalid Zaid, head of the Red Crescent for northern Sinai. As whether foreigners and dual nationals seeking to leave would be let out of Gaza into Egypt, Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Shakri told uh, Al Abiya TV, as long as the crossing is operating normally and the crossing facility has been repaired. More than a million Palestinians, roughly half of Gaza's population, have fled their homes in Gaza City and other places in the northern part of the territory since Israel told them to evacuate. Most have crowded into United Nations-run school shelters or the homes of relatives. The Gaza Health Ministry said more than 3,400 people have been killed in the territory since the war began, most of them women and children and older adults. Nearly 12,500 others were injured, 
and an additional 1,300 people were believed buried under the rubble, health authorities said. More than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel, mostly civilians slain during Hamas's deadly incursion on October 7. Roughly 200 others were abducted. Following Thursday's, Thursday morning's airstrikes, sirens wailed as emergency crews rushed to rescue survivors from a building in Khan Yunus, where many residents were believed trapped under twisted bed frames, broken furniture, and concrete chunks. A suit-covered child, unconscious and dangling in the arms of a rescue worker, was taken out of a damaged building and rushed toward a waiting ambulance. The Israeli military said it killed the top Palestinian militant at Rafah near the Egyptian border and hit hundreds of targets across Gaza including tunnel shafts, intelligence infrastructure, and command centers. It said it struck dozens of mortar launching posts, most of them immediately after they launched shells in, at Israel. Palestinians have been launching barrages of rockets at Israel since the fighting began. Israel has accused the group's leaders and fighters of taking shelter among the civilian population. The Musa family fled to the typically sleeping central Gaza town of Deir al-Bala and took shelter in a cousin's three-story home near a hospital. But at 7.30 p.m. Wednesday, a series of explosions believed to be airstrikes rocked the building, turning the family home into a mountain of rubble that they say buried about 20 women and children. The body of Hayam Musa, the sister-in-law of Associated Press photojournalist Adele Hanna, was recovered from the wreckage Wednesday evening, the family said. They don't know who else is under the rubble. It doesn't make sense, Hanna said. We went to Deir Abala because it's quiet. We thought we would be safe. The Israeli military said it was investigating. Violence was also escalating in the West Bank, where Israel carried out a rare airstrike Thursday, targeting militants in the Nur Esh Shams refugee camp. Israeli troops raided the camp the previous night and were still battling Palestinian fighters inside. Six Palestinians were killed in the camp, the Palestinian Authority's health ministry said, and the Israeli military said the strike killed militants. More than 74 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the war started. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said the decision to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza was approved after a request from Biden, who visited Israel on Wednesday. Relatives of some of the hostages taken to Gaza during the October 7 Hamas attack reacted with fury to the aid announcement. In his brief visit, Biden tried to strike a balance between showing U.S. support for Israel while containing growing alarm among Arab allies. He also announced $100 million in humanitarian aid for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. On Thursday, in an Oval Office address, Biden sought to tie the deadly Middle East conflict to Ukraine's fight against Russia, calling both a threat to U.S. national security. He said U.S. leadership is what holds the world together, urging Americans to support his request for more aid for Israel and Ukraine. Our alliances are what keep us safe and our values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with, Biden said. We put all of that at risk if we walk away from Ukraine or turn our back on Israel. Jordan's King Abdullah II planned to meet in Egypt with President Abdul Fattah Sisi to discuss the conflict. The two countries have peace agreements with neighboring Israel 
and are dealing with anger from their populations over Tuesday night's explosion at Gaza City's Ali Arab Hospital, which Hamas said killed hundreds and blamed on Israel. Biden and other U.S. and Israeli officials say the blast was caused by a Palestinian rocket that went off course. An unclassified U.S. intelligence assessment delivered to Congress estimated casualties in the explosion on the low end of 100 to 300 deaths. The death toll, the death toll still reflects a staggering loss of life, U.S. intelligence officials said in the findings which were sent by the Associated Press. Thursday's findings echoed the conclusion that the explosion was not caused by an Israeli airstrike. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak arrived in Israel on Thursday for a visit to show solidarity with Israel. California Governor Gavin Newsom also plans a one-day trip to Israel to meet some of those affected by the war. The governor is due to arrive in Israel en route to China on Friday, his office said. The announcement said that California will send medical supplies to the region, including Gaza. That was Gaza awaits aid as Israel readies its ground forces by Najib Jobain, Samia Kulab, and Ravi Nesman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20, 2023. Jobain, Kulab, and Nesman write for the Associated Press and reported from Khan Yunus, Baghdad, and Jerusalem, respectively. Time staff writer Courtney Subramanian in Washington contributed to this report. All right, here we go. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 23, 2023. Some on the U.S. left let us down after Hamas's attack. Many American Jews feel betrayed by erstwhile allies. Our human ask is that people give a damn when we die, a rabbi says. By Jaweed Kalim. Like many American Jews, Jonah Goldman sides politically with the left, including its push for the rights of Palestinians. During college, he was active in J Street, the liberal Jewish advocacy group that opposes the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories and lobbies for a two-state solution. But in the aftermath of Hamas's gruesome raid on Israel this month, Goldman has never felt so isolated from people he long considered his allies. He was shocked by how quickly Friends mobilized for the Palestinian cause while failing to condemn the attack. The militants killed more than 1,400 people, most of them civilians, slaughtering families, including children, and taking about 200 more hostage. Good people he never considered anti-Semitic suddenly seemed supportive of Jewish genocide, he said. On social media and college campuses, as well as at pro-Palestinian rallies, the sort of protest Goldman would have once joined, the assault has been portrayed as a form of resistance. He wondered why there was so little mourning for uh, dead Jews. The left in America has really let us down, said Goldman, 31, who lives in the Washington area and considers himself a Democrat and a socialist. His political identity crisis is shared by numerous Jewish activists, scholars, and rabbis who have long seen Israel as an oppressor of Palestinians who want a halt to its retaliatory bombardment of, of the Gaza Strip. The health ministry, which is run by Hamas, said Israel has killed more than 4,300 people, including more than 1,400 children. Israel maintains that it targets militants. I have long been of the view that the occupation is terrible, that Palestinian lives matter, said Shira Klein, a 41-year-old Israeli-American 
history professor at Chapman University in Orange County, who served in Gaza for the Israeli military before it pulled out of the territory in 2005. You see, people at pro-Palestinian rallies say resistance is justified if Palestine is occupied. She said, "On most days, I agree with that, but when there is a massacre of children and families, I do not." She decried a similar lack of nuanced thinking by those who believe that the Hamas attack justifies restrained, unrestrained retribution by Israel. It has become so black and white, she said. On the pro-Israeli side, it is all Israeli flags and dehumanization of Palestinians that we stand with Israel forever kind of mentality. Klein helped organize an open letter signed by more than 900 Jews. Nearly all of the university scholars condemning Hamas's militant as terror as terrorists, but notably not the organization, despite its designation as such by the U.S. government and European Union, and calling for a ceasefire while maintaining that Israel has every right to defend itself. The vast majority of the professors have tenure, she said, explaining that those without it feared signing would lead to repercussions from students and administrators. When it comes to the war, those who signed are largely in sync with the mainstream left, representing rep,、uh, represented by the Democratic Party. Even if the more leftist members of Congress condemned the attack by Hamas, whose founding charter called for the killing of Jews, but in the other quarters of the far left, significant airtime has been given to the view that Israel is a colonization colonizing force, and therefore violence against it is justified. These activists deny that they are anti-Semitic and say the fact that most Israelis are Jews is immaterial. Some have adopted the Hamas position that all Israelis are legitimate targets by virtue of being on land where Palestinians lived before Israeli statehood in 1948. What did y'all think、uh, decolonizing means? Vibes, papers, essays. One freelance writer said on a tweet that garnered 100,000 likes and 23,000 retweets before the account was locked. A day after the attack, 35 student groups at Harvard released a statement saying that they hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Some groups disavowed it after a major law firm and a hedge fund vowed not to hire students associated with their groups, and, and conservative activists broadcast their names. The Democratic Socialists of America posted similar language on Instagram, saying the Hamas attack was not unprovoked, while also condemning the killing of all civilians. And the paraglider used by some of Hamas militants to cross from Gaza into Israel has become a prominent symbol of solidarity with Palestinians. The president of Cal State Long Beach condemned a student group for an Instagram post of a paraglider flying of a paraglider flying over people holding "Resistance is our right" signs. Such displays have been especially disconcerting for many American Jews, given their own deep involvement in the quest for social justice. Jews were key allies of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and many joined the demonstration for racial justice in summer of 2020 after the Minneapolis police murdered George Floyd. Jews have also been among the biggest targets for hate crimes in America, most prominently the 2018 massacre of 11 people at the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Anti-Semitic crimes were second only to anti-black ones in 2022, a pattern frequently seen. And FBI data going back 31 years. 
but as a minority group that is by and large white American Jews who number 7.6 million or 2.3% of the U.S. population have also struggled to find their place in the new hierarchy of identity politics where racial categories have become shorthand for the oppressed and the oppressor. The most contentious issue is the issue of Israel, which was created as a safe haven for Jews after the Holocaust. Its right to exist is sacrosanct for many Jews, which see it as an ancestral homeland where Jewish people have lived for millenniums. As memories of World War II fade and sympathy for the plight of millions of displaced Palestinians has grown as a political cause, support for Israel has waned among younger generations in the United States. When the Pew Research Center asked Jewish American adults whether they had an emotional attachment to Israel, 48% of those younger than 30 said yes in 2020, down from 60% in 2013. In both years, <clears throat> those figures were significantly higher for people 50 and older. Younger Jews are more likely to, con to consider themselves anti-Zionist, against the creation of Israel, or at least the way statehood was granted, a stance that the Anti-Defamation League, a prominent Jewish civil rights organization, considers anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is very real, but I look, but I feel a lot of solidarity among Jews who are anti-Zionists like me, said Benjamin Toby, 22, a social worker who recently graduated from New York University and calls himself a socialist progressive leftist. The Hamas attack did not change his position. He even posted a screenshot of the viral decolonization tweet to his Instagram account. The Palestinian people have exhausted all other options except for violence, Toby said. I do not want to support Hamas because I do not know enough about it, but I do support violence as an answer to settle to settler colonialism against oppressed people. Toby attended a pro-Palestinian rally on Saturday in Bay Ridge, a Brooklyn neighborhood nicknamed Little Palestine. He described them as ending the occupation, stopping bombing, and ending the colonization of Palestine. I think there's a lot of fear-mongering among Jews right now, he said. Anti-Semitism is less of a concern to me than and other Jews than Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian sentiment. That view was common among hundreds of Jews who attended a sit-in Wednesday at a congressional office building near the U.S. Capitol in support of a ceasefire. It was organized by the leftist, Jewish, the leftist group Jewish Voice for Peace, which put out a statement after the Hamas attack saying Israel apartheid and occupation and United States complicity in that oppression are the source of all this violence. The pushback that American Jews might feel for speaking up for Palestinians is a fraction of what Palestinians whose families are being bombed right now feel, said Eliza Klein, a 26-year-old organizer for the group who was arrested at the demonstration. As Jews, we need to speak up when genocide is carried out, the way we wish people did when this was happening to our ancestors. But for many other Jews who support Palestinian rights, it has, been, it has been impossible to stomach the idea that Hamas's victims were legitimate targets. Jenny Kogan, a 32-year-old social worker in New York, said she was saddened to learn that people tore down posters that have been put up in New York, Philadelphia, Miami, and other cities showing the faces of American Jews who had been taken hostage by Hamas. What is the point of that, she said. She has been a pro-Palestinian activist since 2014. 
a path that was inspired by her involvement with the Black Lives Matter movement and has included an educational exchange in Israel and the West Bank. But Kogan has avoided, avoided pro-Palestinian rallies since the Hamas attack, instead attending a vigil to mourn lives lost in Israel and in Gaza. A Jewish-led demonstration in support of a ceasefire and an interfaith march calling for on legislatures to support de-escalation, something she has been praying for. Even though I nearly completed, even though I nearly completely agree with a lot of the pro-Palestinian perspectives at rallies, I felt less comfortable going to them as an American Jew, she said. I almost feel bad for saying I like being Jewish. In some progressive spaces, there is a level for condemnation for Jewish people who do not immediately say they are anti-Zionist or who have spent time in Israel. She believes that Israelis and Palestinians deserve to exist side by side with peace and equal rights and said she would support a two-state solution if it achieved that. That desire is not uncommon among American Jews of all backgrounds. The 2020 Pew poll found that more than 6 in 10 U.S. Jews said they believe a way can be found for Israel and an independent Palestinian state to coexist peacefully. It's a position long held by Karen Siegel, a Democrat who lives in Miami, but no one but one she has now started to question. This Hamas terrorism was so bad and indiscriminate, killing completely innocent people, and the response of the U.S. among liberals has completely lacked nuance, said Siegel 33. Is there ever a chance for peace? I don't see Hamas or American protesters helping. Sure, I have questions about Israeli government, but I have more questions of right now about how people in about right now about people in my own country, she said. Among, amid the anger and grief activists and rabbis on different sides of the debate have urged fellow Jews to maintain a moral compass. Rabbi Sharon Browse, a progressive leader of the IKAR congregation in Los Angeles, who is known for her public criticism of the Israeli government, summed up the views of many. The clear message from many in the world, especially from our world, those who claim to care the most about justice and human dignity, is that these Israeli victims somehow deserved this terrible fate, she said during a recent sermon that was posted online and went viral. Anti-Semitism is so embedded in society, she said, that people cannot even see it. Speaking of the Hamas attack, she said, it was impossible to hear of the deaths of more than 1,400 people without thinking of our multi-generational Holocaust trauma. Our humanist ask is, to, is that people give a damn when we die, she said. That was some on U.S. left let us down after Hamas attack by Jaweed Kalim on the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 23rd, 2023. Continuing from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Hamas frees two Israeli hostages as U.S. seeks ground war delay by Wafa, Sharafa, Semi Magdi, and Joseph Krauss. Deir al-Bala, Gaza Strip. Hamas released two elderly Israeli women held hostage in Gaza on Monday as the United States expressed increasing concern that the escalating Israel-Hamas war will spark a wider conflict in the region, including attacks on American troops. The death toll in the Gaza Strip rose rapidly as Israel ramped up airstrikes, flattening residential buildings and what it says was prepare preparation for an eventual ground assault, 
the U.S. advised Israel to delay an expected ground invasion to allow time to negotiate the release of more hostages taken by Hamas during its brutal incursion two weeks ago. A third small uh, aid and uh, convoy from Egypt entered Gaza, where the population of 2.3 million has been running out of food, water, and medicine under Israel's two-week siege. With Israel still barring entry of fuel, the UN said its distribution of aid would grind to a halt within days when its trucks run out of fuel. Gaza hospitals flooded by a constant stream of wounded are struggling to keep generators running to power life-saving medical equipment and incubators for premature babies. The two freed hostages, 85-year-old Yoheved Lifshitz and 79-year-old Yurit Cooper, were taken out of Gaza in the, at the Rafah crossing into Egypt, where they were put into ambulances, according to videos shown on Egyptian TV. The two women, along with their husbands, were snatched from their homes in the kibbutz of Nir Oz, near the Gaza border during Hamas's October 7 rampage into southern Israeli communities. Their husbands were not released. Hamas said it had released them for humanitarian reasons, days after freeing an American woman and her teenage daughter. Hamas and other militants in Gaza are believed to have taken roughly 220 people, including, including an unconfirmed number of foreigners and dual national, nationals. Israel is widely expected to launch a ground offensive in Gaza and has vowed to destroy Hamas, Iranian-backed fighters, around the region are warning of possible escalation if that happens, including targeting U.S. forces in the Middle East. The U.S. has told Iranian-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon and other groups not to join the fight. Israel and Hezbollah have traded fire almost daily across the Israel-Lebanon border, and Israeli warplanes have struck targets in the occupied West Bank, Syria, and Lebanon in recent days. National Security Council spokesman John F. Kirby said that there had been an uptick in rocket and drone attacks by Iranian-backed militias on the American troops in Iraq and Syria, and the U.S. was deeply concerned about the possibility for any significant escalation in attacks in coming days. He said U.S. officials were having active conversations with Israeli counterparts about the potential ramifications of escalated military action. The U.S. advised Israeli officials said that delaying a ground offensive would give Washington more time to work with regional mediators on securing the release of more hostages, according to U.S. officials. Israeli tanks, ground and, Israeli tanks and ground forces have been massed at the Gaza border, and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant told troops there Monday to keep preparing for an offensive because it will come. He said it will be a combined offensive from air, land, and sea, but did not give a time frame. A ground offensive is likely to dramatically increase casualties in what is already the deadliest by far of five wars between Israel and Hamas since the militant group seized power in Gaza in 2007. More than 1,400 people in Israel have been killed, mostly civilians slain during the initial Hamas attack. At least 222 people were captured and dragged back to Gaza, including foreigners, the military said Monday, updating a previous figure. More than 5,000 Palestinians, including some 2,000 minors and around 1,100 women, have been killed, the Hamas-run health ministry said Monday. That includes the disputed toll from an explosion at a hospital last week. 
The overall toll has climbed rapidly in recent days, with the ministry reporting 436 additional deaths in just the last 24 hours. Israel said Monday that it had struck 320 militant targets throughout Gaza over the previous 24 hours. The military says it does not target civilians and that Palestinian militants have fired more than 7,000 rockets at Israel since the start of the war. Israel carried out limited ground forays into Gaza. On Sunday, Hamas said it destroyed an Israeli tank and two armored bulldozers inside the enclave. The Israeli military said a soldier was killed and three others were wounded by an anti-tank missile during a raid inside Gaza. Intense airstrikes continued Monday across the territory. After striking Gaza City, a woman with blood on her face wept as she clasped the hand of a dead relative. At least three bodies were sprawled on the street, one lying in a gray stream of water. After a series of strikes in the south, Rafa's Abu Yosef Najjar Hospital registered 61 deaths Monday, its spokesperson said. Bodies of the dead were laid out on the hospital grounds, spokesperson Talat Bargav said. The Palestinian Red Crescent said Monday that 20 trucks entered Gaza carrying food, water, medicine, and medical supplies through the Rafa crossing with Egypt, the only way into Gaza not controlled by Israel. It was the third delivery in as many days, each around the same size. The aid coming in so far is a drop in the ocean, compared with the needs of the population, said Thomas White, the Gaza director of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA. The UN has said that 20 trucks amount amount to 4, 4% of an average day's imports before the war and that hundreds of trucks a day are needed. White said that the agency had only three days of fuel left for its trucks. The supplies coming through Rafa are reloaded onto UNRWA and the Red Crescent trucks to take uh, to hospitals and UN schools in the south of Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of, of people are taking shelter, running low on food, and largely drinking contaminated water. At least 1.4 million Palestinians in Gaza fled their homes. Nearly 580,000 of them are seeking refuge in UN-run schools and shelters, the UN said Monday. No aid will be distributed in Gaza City and other parts of the north, where hundreds of thousands of people remain. Gaza City's Shifa Hospital, with a normal capacity of 700 patients, is currently overwhelmed with 5,000. And about 45,000 displaced people are gathered in and around its grounds for shelter, the UN said. The North didn't receive anything from incoming aid, said Mahmoud Shalabi, a worker with the Medical Aid for Palestinians group based in the northern town of Beit Lahia. It's like a death sentence for the people in the north of Gaza. That was Hamas frees two Israeli hostages as U.S. seeks ground war delay by Wafa Sharafa, Sami Magdi, and Joseph Krauss from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 24, 2023. Sharafa, Magdi, and Krauss write for the Associated Press and reported from Deir al-Bala, Cairo, and Jerusalem, respectively. AP Washington, AP writers, Amir Madani in Washington, Amy Table in Jerusalem, and Brian Melly in London contributed to this report. All right, now we have two articles uh, for the on the front, front of two front page articles from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October twenty fifth, twenty twenty three, both under the title of "Keep Hostages Hopes Alive," 
And this first one is called Israelis Hold Vigils and Coordinate Their Efforts by Laura King. Tel Aviv. These days, when Israelis, Israelis speak of loved ones who are missing and believed held by the militant group Hamas, they sometimes make a small, heartbreaking slip of the tongue. She was so brave, they might say, or he was, re he was a, really a very kind person. Then with a quick draw of breath, they catch themselves. She is. He is. Because using the present tense connotes the belief, uh, that, or at least the hope, that the missing are still among the living. For family members and close friends of the more than 220 people seized in southern Israel during a deadly onslaught of Palestinian militants on October 7, this has been a time of near hallucinatory grief and wrenching uncertainty. Many families, if not most, do not know whether missing loved ones are dead or alive inside the Gaza Strip, the densely populated coastal enclave that is now being pummeled by Israeli bombardment, starved of food and electricity, and is under imminent threat of an Israeli ground invasion. Those taken include grandmothers and infants, entire families together, young children separated from mothers in the chaos, teenage army conscripts and school children, foreign citizens, and young people who were dancing in the desert. So varied a group as to defy categorization other than their common presence near the Gaza fence on that fateful Saturday morning. So gruesome was the Hamas-led rampage of October 7, with the bodies of many victims mutilated or burned beyond recognition, that forensic specialists are still identifying the dead and funerals occur daily across the country. That has accounted for slight shifts in uh, the number of those listed as missing and presumed to have been abducted. As of Tuesday, the hostage total was 222. In some cases, there is video proof derived in part from surveillance footage, but often from the, bo uh, the body cams of the Hamas attackers themselves of captives being snatched up, or their smartphones pinged a signal from inside the Gaza Strip before falling silent, or surviving eyewitnesses, those who were not among some 1,400 people slaughtered that day, told rescuers they had seen them dragged away and spirited across the Gaza frontier. Those captives, the ones who unwittingly left the trail of digital breadcrumbs or were fleetingly glimpsed by a terrified onlooker, are the ones whose fam families have some tangible proof of life, at least at that particular point in time, to cling to which is, of course, its own kind of agonizing purgatory. Scores of others, though, simply vanished. I'm with you, Yonatan Zegim, a Tel Aviv father of three, texted in his 74-year-old mother, Vivian Silver, at the, as the attack unfolded in her southern kibbutz. Over a period of hours, she had told him that the assailants were inside the community, that they had drawn close to her house, that she, uh, that she was hiding. I feel you, she said. Then, nothing. For Israelis, a hostage event of this scope and nature is difficult to put into historical perspective. Since the advent of statehood 75 years ago, the closest analog involving mass captivity might be Entebbe, shorthanded for the 1976 hijacking that ultimately led to 103 captives being rescued in Uganda by an Israeli command squad. As so often happens here, time echoes in particular ways, in peculiar ways. 
The only Israeli soldier killed in the daring entity raid was 30-year-old Yonatan Netanyahu, elder brother of Israel's embattled prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Few, though, expect the current crisis to assume a place uh, comparable to it Entebbe in the national mythology. Tragedy turned to triumph. It's, a more, it's more a question many fear of exactly how terrible the outcome will be. In recent decades, hostage episodes have been far smaller scale affairs, politically fraught, personally harrowing, but also contributing to a long accepted political and social contract that Israel will not abandon its own. Almost three weeks into the current crisis, there have been brief moments of hope amid the gloom that releases days apart of two pairs of hostages. Last week saw the freeing of U.S. citizens Judith and Natalie Ranon, a mother and daughter, 59 and 70, 17, from suburban Chicago. They were visiting relatives when the Hamas attack occurred. On Monday night, two Israeli women, Nurit Cooper, 79, and Yochavet Lifshitz, 85, were handed over to the Red Cross by Hamas. Lifshitz told reporters at a Tel Aviv hospital on Tuesday of being spirited into Gaza through a dank spiderweb of tunnels after the militants assaulted her on, kibbutz, on her kibbutz, which left nearly half of her, its 400 inhabitants dead or missing. My memory keeps replaying those pictures, she said, of the hours-long attacks. The immense Hamas tunnel network, whose existence has long been known to Israeli intelligence, haunts the dreams of hostages' families who voice enormous anxiety over the prospect of an Israeli ground invasion in Gaza. They fear that their captive relatives would have little chance of surviving bloody urban combat. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz, quoting a Mossad spy agency official who has worked on past hostage deals, cited prospects for a large-scale release as a, fa as a fading hope the longer the captives are held. If we wait until after the war, said Mossad veteran David Meldon, many of those we're talking about will not be alive. In spite of the proximity to Gaza and the rockets regularly fired by Palestinian militants from inside the enclave, Israeli residents of a string of southern communities described a life they regarded as not only peaceful, but safe, even idyllic. The Israeli military was strong and the border was secure with electronic eyes everywhere, or so they believed. One particularly cruel irony is that the targeted villages were havens for Israelis of a leftist bent who believed, some passionately, that coexistence with the Palestinians was possible, that Israel's occupation of the West Bank was wrong, that near the near hermetic ceiling off to, of Gaza and its more than 2 million Palestinian inhabitants risked an eventual explosion of violence. Zagan said his mother, a long-time peace activist, would hate the idea of Palestinian civilians being put in harm's way. Since the start of the war, more than 5,700 Palestinians have been killed, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, which in Gaza is controlled by Hamas. Israeli bombing have, has leveled entire districts, hundreds of thousands are displaced, and aid groups call it the territory's gravest humanitarian crisis in decades. She would be devastated over both sides suffering so much loss and destruction, Sagan said. While many Israelis have been infuriated by Netanyahu's refusal to engage with hostages' families as the crisis drags on, relatives said 
They felt valued by meetings with President Biden and this week with Israel's President Isaac Herzog. We felt that everyone all the country is standing with us, said Yael Engel Litchi, whose 18-year-old nephew, Offer Engel, was visiting his girlfriend at one of the devastated kibbutzim when the attacker struck. He was last seen being loaded into a black vehicle by militants. His aunt, who lives outside Jerusalem, likened the hostage family's despair to a widening circle like ripples spreading onward in a pond. There is almost no one who doesn't experience this uh, somehow. Israel can sometimes look at, like a chaotic place, but there are occasions when its citizenry organizes itself with astonishing rapidity. Grassroots efforts swiftly sprang up to coordinate communication between the families of the missing and the Israeli officialdom. Demonstrators gathered daily outside the Kiria, its military headquarters in Tel Aviv, in a poignant and potent reminder that the captives should not be forgotten. Israel's vaunted startup culture swiftly took on a vital role. With the first 24 hours, within the first 24 hours, a pair of Tel Aviv entrepreneurs, both veterans of the country's security services, mobilized a high-tech war room of civilian volunteers. The bulk of them, 20-somethings, with formidable cyber skills, honed in elite military intelligence units. In a sleek Tel Aviv suburb known as Israel's Silicon Valley, uh, clusters of young men and women hunched over laptops using facial recognition tools and geolocation methods to comb through thousands of images from Gaza and the targeted Israeli communities, scrapping social media platforms for digital clues to captives' whereabouts. At the very beginning of this, I'd be home watching television with my mother, both of us crying, said volunteer Ido Brush, 24, who until eight months ago served in an army cyber unit. But this is so much better to use my skills to help. Older traditions have their place as well. As the Jewish Sabbath fell on Friday, there was a somber gathering in the courtyard of the futuristic-looking Tel Aviv Art Museum. A long table was laid with colorful crockery as it for a festive Sabbath meal, and lined with more than 200 empty chairs to symbolize the missing. At a nearby square in Tel Aviv, people come everywhere every evening to light uh, candles on crowding the circular rim of a fountain or to lay flowers in tribute to the missing. I feel as if this is a way to be with them, for, uh, for, for us all to be together, said so Noah Mishali, 31, a veterinary student, because there is really nothing more to do but hope. That was Israelis hold vigils and coordinate their efforts by Laura King. From the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. And the next article is called California Relatives Call Uncertainty a Nightmare by Brittany Mejia and Haley Branson Potts. Galia Mizrahi walked past rows of freshly dug graves preparing to bury two loved ones killed when Hamas attacked southern Israel. The 55-year-old had left her home in Tarzana less than two weeks earlier for the country of her birth, her heart aching to be here for her family as Israel plunged into war. Not only were her 48-year-old cousin and his 20-year-old daughter killed in their kibbutz on October 7, her other family members are among the more than 220 people kidnapped and being held hostage in Gaza. 
In the presence of so much loss, all you can do is latch on to the hope that those who were taken will be returned, Ms. Rahi said in a Zoom interview on Monday, still wearing her funeral black. The kidnappings have, re have reverberated around the world, including in the homes of Californians. Some have visited a Shabbat dinner table on Beverly Hills with seats kept empty for the hostages or shared their stories from the steps of the state capitol in Sacramento. Others have flown to Israel to support their families. Sometimes there are signs of hope. Nurit Cooper, 79, whose son lives in San Diego, was freed Monday evening. Cooper's husband, Amiram, is still being held captive. The news that Cooper and three other hostages were released has heartened Ryan Pesa, a Sacramento resident. His cousin, his cousin's girlfriend, and his cousin's sons, ages 12 and 16, were kidnapped. I remain optimistic, Pesa said. There's no other choice. Mizrahi was at a Shabbat dinner in Beverly Hills on October 6th when she first learned of the Code Red Alert's warning of an impending missile attack in southern Israel. Her aunt and uncle and two cousins, along with their wives and children, live in the Kifar Aza Kibbutz, less than two miles from Gaza. One cousin described hearing the alert and heading to a safe room in her house with her husband and children. Then, she told Ms. Rahi, her husband spotted someone coming down on a paraglider, machine gun in hand. The family got in their car and fled to a relative's home. Four, hour, four houses down, Ms. Rahi's other cousin, Nadav Goldstein Almog, had gone into their safe room with his wife, two daughters aged 17 and 20, and two sons, 9 and 11. An Ironman athlete, Goldstein uh, among Albank was recovering from a hit-and-run cycling accident. He was still on crutches, and Mizrahi believes that's why he couldn't escape. Days passed with no word about Goldstein, Almag, and his family. Other relatives later heard from the Israel Defense Forces that four bodies had been found in the safe room. On October 11, Mizrahi's father died in an Israeli hospital of causes unrelated to the war. After landing in the country two days later, she learned that only two bodies he had, had, been, had been found in her cousin's house. That left four relatives unaccounted for. That weekend, Ms. Rahi's family received pre preliminary confirmation that the bodies were those of Goldstein Almug and his daughter Yam, an active duty member of the military who had gone home for the weekend. Investigators were able to determine their identities, Ms. Rahi said, uh, through the crutches and metal, pl metal plate in Goldstein Almug's hip and Yam's distinctive tattoo of two butterflies. No one knew where the other family members were. Relatives held off on a funeral, unsure of whether the four were still alive or whether they might have to bury them too. Then, on October 19, authorities told the family they had information confirming that the four had been taken to Gaza. The days Mizrahi has spent in Israel have felt like years, she said. I'm so sorry for your loss had become the new hello as she walks the streets. I feel like what I've squeezed into these 10, 12 days is someone in someone else's lifetime of sorrow, she said. For Pesah, the details of, of his Israeli family members' kidnappings unfolded one devastating surreal text message at a time. On October 7th, he was driving his wife and two young children from their home in Sacramento to the Bay Area to visit his uncle. It was Saturday, Shabbat, the Jewish day of rest, a day he does not use his phone. His wife uses hers, though. As they drove, 
her phone began flashing uh, with news alerts. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just declared war, she read aloud, stunned. Then, a text message from Pesa's mother in San Diego. Yair and his family are missing. Nobody could reach Pesa's cousin, Yair Yaakov, or his girlfriend, Meirav Tal, who were at Yaakov's home in near Oz, a kibbutz two miles from Gaza. Yaakov's sons also were nowhere to be found. On Sunday, Pesa's mother, who was Yaakov's aunt, texted a video. It shows the inside of Yaakov's house filled with smoke. His girlfriend, her eyes wide with terror and her clothing covered with dust from a grenade blast, grasps the hand of a militant, bleeding as she is pulled and shoved. Yaakov sits on the floor at gunpoint as an intruder speaks to him. Hamas militants filmed the video and texted it to Yaakov's siblings, Pesach said. The moment I see Yar, I'm just shaking, crying, just completely, Pesach said. It was taken because he's Israeli, because he's Jewish. What is going to happen? How will we get him back? Just why? Yaakov, 59, a slender, bald man, is the ultimate cool guy who smells of cigarette smoke when he wraps his arms around you, Pesach said. Let's enjoy life, he embodied that. Let's enjoy life, he embodied that, Pesach said. On the day of the siege, Yaakov and Tav were at his home, hiding in a bomb shelter, which are common in Israeli houses. Hamas militants burst in, using a grenade to open the shelter door and pull the couple out, Pesach said. Yaakov's daughter and her boyfriend hid in a shelter in another home in the kibbutz. The attackers exploded a grenade in there, in there too, but it jammed the door shut. They were found days later, grief-stricken, but safe, Pesach said. Yaakov's sons were staying nearby at their mother's house, but she was not there during the attack, Pesach said. In a phone call, she heard the boys pleading with the militants, telling them they were too young to be taken. Then the line went silent. There had been no other communication from Yaakov, his girlfriend, his sons, or the abductors. Pesach, a 35-year-old political lobbyist, had become a de facto spokesman for his family in Israel, which includes most of his mother's 11 siblings. He had done media interviews. He spoke during a rally this week on the steps of the California Capitol. He told the state legislature to check in with their Jewish community. They do not feel safe. Still, Pesach said he feels helpless half a world away. Pesach said he knows that if Israel launches a ground invasion of Gaza, there are, like, there are likely to be a high number of casualties on both sides. For now, he hopes that Yaakov and his girlfriend and son sons are, are together. He hopes they're safe. It's this unimaginable nightmare, Pesach said. I keep telling myself, you're not dreaming. You're not going to wake up. This is reality. On Monday afternoon, a military procession escorted two coffins holding the bodies of Goldstein Amag and daughter Yam Goldstein. They were buried at the Shefayim Kibbutz in central Israel, Mizrahi said, because it was too dangerous in the south. The hope, she said, is to transfer them back to their kibbutz once the community is rebuilt. About 500 people attended the funeral, including Yam's military friends, who spoke highly of her dedication. 20-year-olds giving eulogy to other 20-year-olds is something I haven't seen, Ms. Rahi said. They're all so young, and they've all experienced so much loss. In Bar Goldstein, Goldstein Amok's sister read the crowd a poem she'd written. Our duty is not to forget, she said, not to forget who was taken beyond the fence, not to forget who those who are waiting to come home. 
After the attack, Yam's aunt got on the same butterfly got the same butterfly tattoo as her niece. She added six hearts beside it, two of them blackened in. The other four will remain empty, Ms. Ra, he said, until we know what happened to them. That was California Relatives Call Uncertainty a Nightmare for Brittany Mejia and Haley Branson Potts. And both of those articles are under the caption Keeping Hostage Hopes Alive. And they're both from the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. All right, we go on to this one. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, October 25th, 2023, amid criticism, Blinken makes plea for Gazans. Foreign leaders and some inside Biden administration say U.S. has neglected Palestinian civilians by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The Biden administration is facing mounting criticism that its support of Israel is ignoring massive civilian casualties, a potential war crime, while, also while it also confronts ripples of dissent within its own governing ranks. After days of pointing complaints from King Abdullah II of Jordan, United Nations and international humanitarian agencies, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken on Tuesday made his deepest plea to date for the safety of Palestinian civilians living under steady Israeli bombardment in the Gaza Strip. Every civilian life is equally valuable, Blinken told the UN Security Council. We know Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people, and Palestinian civilians are not to blame for the carnage committed by Hamas. Palestinian civilians must be protected. That includes stopping Hamas from using civilians as human shields and urging Israel to avoid harming civilians while allowing the flow of food, water, and medicine into Gaza, Blinken said. He advocated for a series of humanitarian pauses to ease the Gaza crisis, something the U.S. vetoed in a U.N. resolution just last week. According to figures provided by the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry and the U.N., more than 5,000 Palestinians, nearly half of them women and children, have been killed in Gaza by Israeli strikes launched in retaliation for the October 7 attacks by Hamas militants on Israelis in southern Israel that killed more than 1,400. More than 200 people were also abducted, including several American citizens. The UN noted at least 30 members of its Gaza-based staff were among the dead. Israel said Tuesday it, it, it executed 400 airstrikes in Gaza overnight. Vast residential sections of Gaza City, home to more than a million people, and where Hamas, uh, Israel maintains that Hamas operates, have been leveled. Reports from Gaza said many of the latest airstrikes targeted southern parts of the coastal enclave, areas where Israel told Gazans they should seek refuge to stay safe. President Biden and his government were so horrified by the Hamas killings and kidnappings that their unwavering support for Israel left little room for consideration of Palestinian civilians who soon fell victim to Israeli retaliation in a bombing campaign of the densely populated strip of an intensity not seen in years, if ever. Gradually, though, Biden and others slightly shifted their rhetoric and urged Israel to respect the rules of war, expressing concern for civilian casualties and for the arrival of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip after Israel cut off water, food, electricity, and medicine. 
the denial of basic goods to a besieged population like Gazan Palestinians can also be considered a violation of international humanitarian law. At an emergency Middle East summit in Cairo over the weekend, Jordan and Egypt, until recently the only Arab countries that recognized Israel, evinced anger and impatience with their neighbor. They adamantly rejected Israeli attempts to force Gaza's Palestinians into their countries, which they said was tantamount to ethnic cleansing. King Abdullah II, one of Washington's closest allies, said the siege, bombardment, and forced displacement constituted a, a war crime and a red line for all of us. Anywhere else, attacking civilian infrastructure and deliberately starving an entire population of food, water, electricity, and basic necessities would be condemned, said Abdullah, speaking in English to reach his intended audience. Accountability would be enforced immediately, unequivocally, but not in Gaza. Abdullah continued, The message it, uh, the Arab world is hearing is loud and clear. Palestinian lives matter less than an Israeli ones. Our lives matter less than other lives. The application of international law is optional, and human rights have boundaries. They stop at borders, they stop at races, and they stop at religions. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who hosted Tuesday's meeting where Blinken spoke, also scolded the U.S. handling of the Israel-Hamas crisis and ended up infuriating Israel. The appalling acts by Hamas did not justify the collective punishment of more than two million Palestinians, he said. Protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than a million people to evacuate to the south where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine, and no fuel, and then con continuing to bomb the south itself, Guterres said. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum, he said, recounting the 56 years of suffocating occupation in which Palestinians have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. The economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Israel immediately demanded that Guterres step down. In Washington, John F. Kirby, spokesman for the White House National Security Council, also bristled at the attempt to place the conflict in context. Hamas is to blame. Hamas is to blame, he told reporters. International humanitarian law that governs the conduct of armed conflict is far more complicated than uh, most casual observers realize. The determination of a war crime, for example, which is technically a grave breach of the rules of con conduct, can depend on numerous factors, including the status of the participants in the conflict. Generally, however, the reckless or negligent killing of civilians is considered a major violation of international law. Asked repeatedly if the State Department had been able to judge whether Israel is obeying the laws of war, spokesman Matthew Miller accurately replied that such a determination would have to be made by lawyers and a tribunal, such as the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Biden, Blinken, and other U.S. officials have urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders to respect humanitarian law, Miller said. U.S. officials say Israel has always insisted it is targeting military objectives in its crushing bombardments, even though the number of non-combatant deaths has soared. Biden administration officials have generally been willing to take at face value Israel's assertions that military targets exist even in civilian areas, such as residential apartment buildings and hospitals.
You have to remember the context in which Israel is carrying out those strikes, and that is against an, or an opponent, a terrorist organization that has embedded its infrastructure inside civilian buildings, in schools, in hospitals, under schools, under hospitals, inside residential apartment buildings, Miller said. Israel has a legitimate right to carry out military obligations targeting a foreign terrorist organization. It should do that in a way that minimizes to the maximum extent possible civilian harm. That's what we've made clear to them. In addition to rattling Arab allies, the administration's full-throated support for Israel triggered ripples of discontent within the State Department among some officers who said failure to acknowledge the plight of the Palestinians could erode support for Israel and call into question U.S. credibility. Josh Paul, a decade-long employee for, of the state agency that oversees political military affairs, including the sales of weapons, publicly resigned, saying Israel's heavy-handed response to what he called Hamas's monstrous attacks and U.S. support for that response would lead only to more suffering for Palestinians and Israelis. Other rumblings of discontent have been reported, especially among younger officers inside Foggy Bottom, who are more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Senior State Department officials say dissent within an agency that employs more than 70,000 people was not unusual and, in fact, welcome. Still, Blinken penned a rare pep talk to the team when he returned last week from a whirlwind crisis diplomacy mission in Israel and six Arab nations. As we go through this challenging period, please devote extra care and attention to each other. Let's demonstrate the humanity, the empathy, and the grace within our own community that we strive to build in the world, Lincoln said in the note distributed to employees. And let us also be sure to sustain and expand the space for debate and dissent that makes our policies and our institution better. We have a difficult stretch ahead, he said. The risk of greater turmoil and strife is real. And yet where this crisis goes from here is not inevitable. It will come down in no small part to how America and each and every one of us leads in this critical period. That was Amid Criticism, Blinken Makes Plea for Gazas by Tracy Wilkinson from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. All right, let's go into some opinion articles here. This first one is from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 11, 2023. Netanyahu's politics paved the way for calamity. and rewarding Israel's extremists, he wrongly thought he could solve the problems of occupation by Shlomo Ben-Ami. Sooner or later, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's destructive political magic, which has kept him in power for 15 years, was bound to usher in a major tragedy. A year ago, he informed the, he formed the most radical and incompetent government in Israel's history. Don't worry, he assured his critics, I have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. But by ruling out any political process in Palestine and boldly asserting in his government's guidelines that uh, the Jewish people have an exclusive and inalienable right to all parts of the land of Israel, Netanyahu's fanatical government made bloodshed inevitable. Admittedly, blood flowed in Palestine even when peace seekers such as Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak were in office. But Netanyahu recklessly invited violence by paying his co coalition partners any price for their support. 
He let them grab Palestinian lands, expand illegal settlements, scorn Muslim sensibilities regarding the, regarding the sacred mosque on the Temple Mount, and promote suicidal delusions about the reconstruction of the biblical temple in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, he also sidelined the more moderate Palestinian leadership of Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, effectively beefing up the radical Hamas in Gaza. According to Netanyahu's twisted logic, strong Islamist rule in Gaza would be the ultimate argument against a political solution in Palestine. By rewarding the extremists and castigating the moderates, Netanyahu believed that he, unlike the soft leftists, had finally found the solution to the conflict. The Abraham Accords, which normalized Israel's relations with four Arab states and will probably soon include Saudi Arabia, blinded him to the Palestinian volcano beneath his feet. But in the ruthless, barbaric massacre of Israeli civilians in the villages surrounding Gaza, Netanyahu's hubris met its nemesis in the form of Hamas's savagery. Fifty years and a day after Egypt and Syria launched their surprise attack in what became known as the Yom Kippur War, Hamas stormed Israel, uh, Gaza's borders with Israel and slaughtered hundreds of defenseless civilians. Many have expressed surprise that Hamas so easily penetrated Israel's defenses along the border with Gaza. But there were no such defenses. When Hamas began slaughtering hundreds of defenseless civilians, Israel's glorious army was mostly deployed elsewhere. Many were assigned to the West Bank to protect religious settlers in clashes, sometimes initiated by the settlers themselves with local Palestinians and in festivals around their shrines. The assumption was always that Gaza was not a vital priority. An underground wall of sensors and fortified concrete that Israel has built around the enclave was supposed to block the tunnels through which Hamas tried in the past to penetrate Israeli border villages. It was of no use. Hamas militants, militias simply stormed the fences on the surface. The attack by Hamas was not just a tactical surprise, but also a strategic bombshell. In the last two years, Hamas was creating the impression that it was becoming a government more interested in meeting its people's material needs than in presumably ineffective armed resistance. And the Israelis believed what they wanted to believe, that subsidies from Qatar and their own, their own gestures would dissuade Hamas from future military adventures. And now what? Restore deter deference? How exactly? Self-punishment in the form of a renewed occupation of Gaza? A land invasion is difficult to imagine. The atrocious level of destruction and casualties uh, this would entail is one reason, uh, with the many Israeli hostages now in Gaza providing additional insurance. The risk of Hezbollah opening an additional front from Lebanon and the north is another. Hezbollah's capabilities dwarf those of Hamas and a two-front war with Iran possibly backing Israel's foes, is an apocalyptic scenario. This is why President Biden warned Israel's enemies to not exploit the crisis. To drive home the point, Biden has ordered a Navy aircraft carrier group to the eastern Mediterranean. But then, when has the Israel-Palestine conflict ever responded to logic? We learned from Clausewitz that war is supposed to make sense in the context of a political objective. Hamas's current war has such objectives, 
securing its hedge money in the Palestinian national movement, freeing its men from Israeli prisons by trading hostages for them, and preventing Palestine's plight from being forsaken by the Arab brethren in their rush to normalize relations with the Jewish state. For Netanyahu's government, however, this is a purely reactive war with no political objective beyond that of reaching a pause until the next round of hostilities. When the fighting ends, negotiations for an exchange of hostages and prisoners are inevitable. Possibly, the clearer, clearly an effective blockade of Gaza should be lifted. In any case, a different question will remain. Whether the barbarity that the Hamas militias displayed in the killing fields around Gaza is the right path to Palestinian redemption. Their moment of supposed glory will live in infamy for many years to come. That was Netanyahu's Politics Paved the Way for Calamity by Shlomo Ben-Ami from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 11, 2023. Shlomo Ben-Ami, a former Israeli foreign minister, is the author of Prophets Without Honor, the 2000 Camp Camp David Summit, and the End of the Two-State Solution. Here's another from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 12, 2023. My life in Israel since Hamas attacked. My apartment building in Tel Aviv isn't safe. If we're in there and a rocket hits it, we'll die. By Itamar Carby. Tel Aviv. On Saturday, I woke up at 7.30 a.m. to the sound of sirens. My wife and I quickly went down the staircase of our building and waited to hear distant explosions, which would mean that Israel's defense system was functioning. When we went back to our apartment, we read the news. Hamas terrorists attacked Israel. I'm a 31-year-old PhD candidate studying climate change. I'm a peace activist and and I've protected against all previous Israeli operations in Gaza. Luckily, my family members who live near the Gaza border were not in Israel this weekend. But Ayelet, my wife, found out that two of her cousins in their early 20s were staying with their grandmother in a kibbutz on the Gaza border. When they first heard the bombings, they hid in the in-house shelter like they had done before. Then they heard gunshots, then terrorists shouting inside the house. They locked the door to the shelter and held the doorknob shut as hard as possible. Soon, they heard people using a hammer trying to break down the door. Then they smiled, smoke coming in under the door and through the window. They did not have food or water. They still managed to wet some clothes and push them into the gaps between the window and the wall so they would not suffocate. They stayed there in the dark, in silence for many hours, fighting to keep the door closed. Finally, they were rescued and the army evacuated them to another location in the village. When they left the shelter, they saw that everything in the house was burned. Most of their belongings were missing. I can't imagine of what they saw when they crossed the village on foot, but they knew they were the lucky ones. Many people from the village were kidnapped to, Ga- uh, to Gaza on Saturday, babies and grandmothers included. Many more were murdered, women and grandfathers too. Our cousin's grandmother is right when she says that if it weren't for her grandchildren, she would be dead or in Gaza. They are alive, but what life do they have now? This coming weekend, there was supposed to be an indie music festival next to the Gaza border. My friends and I were planning to go. We missed it the last few years. My wife's brother and my cousin had tickets too. I can hear distant explosions as I write and one thought keeps running through my head. What if the attack 
had happened next weekend, what would what life would I have? Hamas murdered hundreds of innocent people at a music festival during their attacks on Saturday. They kidnapped scores of others and took them to Gaza on that bloody morning. My social media is still full of photos of them. They have beautiful smiles, some were in their 20s and others in their 70s. I'm scared to go on social media because I might see a familiar face in these photos. There are so many horrible videos from this festival. Watching them could scar one's soul till the end of one's life. What Hamas did is inhumane. Murdering, kidnapping, and assaulting hundreds of people is not a fight for liberation. On Saturday, I saw the death toll rise to 50, then 100. Reporters wrote that the number will get much higher. The death toll was 150 when Hamas declared it was going to bomb Tel Aviv at 8 p.m. Saturday night. We already know the drill of going down from our rooftop apartment. I hear another distant explosion and staying in the staircase, which is considered safer. Our staircase is not safe. It has windows facing south toward Gaza, and if a rocket hits the building, we'll die. At 7.15 p.m., we decided to leave and go to my wife's grandparents, where they have a shelter. We couldn't feel safe in our own home. At 8 p.m., Hamas shot rockets on Tel Aviv. One rocket fell in my neighborhood 90 seconds later. I know it was 90 seconds because in Tel Aviv, that's how long we have to get to a safe space in a rocket attack. The rocket exploded and destroyed a few buildings close to my home. We were safe in the shelter with my wife's 90-year-old grandparents and our two-week-old niece. We left our cat in our apartment and it has been hiding under the bed ever since. The Israeli death toll is now more than a thousand. Reporters say it will get higher. That's the news. I'm fortunate to be alive. That's my life right now. That's my life in Israel since Hamas attacked by Itamar Karbi from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, uh, October 12, 2023. Itamar Karbi is an Israeli peace activist and a PhD student who lives in Tel Aviv. Let's move on to some other news now. This is from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. Shift to offer a bill on striking workers' pay. Federal effort follows Newsom veto against providing jobless benefits in such cases by Queenie Wong. The political fight over whether workers on strike should be allowed to collect unemployment benefits is reigniting in Washington. U.S. Representative Adam B. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, who is running for the Senate, is planning to introduce legislation this week that would provide unemployment benefits nationwide to workers on strike. Most states don't allow striking workers to collect unemployment, with the exception of New York and New Jersey. Eligibility requirements and the amount of weekly unemployment pay also vary by state. Under the Empowering Striking Workers Act of 20, 2023, workers would be able to collect unemployment pay after two weeks on strike, according to the, a draft of the bill viewed by the Times. Workers would also be eligible for unemployment benefits starting on the date a lockout begins, when the employer hired permanent replacement workers or if the workers became unemployed after strike or lockout ends, whichever is earlier. Democratic U.S. Representatives Donald Norcross of New Jersey and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York also are sponsoring the bill. Labor Union SAG-AFTRA, the Writers Guild of America, the Teamsters, and the AFL-CIO are supporting the legislation as well, according to Schiff's office. 
But with Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, the odds that the bill will pass are slim. Businesses have strongly opposed the idea because they said it would lead to higher employer taxes. Employers pay state and federal payroll taxes to fund the unemployment insurance program. The expected introduction of a federal bill comes after California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed state legislation in September to provide unemployment for striking workers. Newsom said he did so because of financial concerns, a move highly criticized by labor leaders. California borrowed billions of dollars from the federal government to cover under cover unemployment benefits, and the state's unemployment fund debt was projected to be nearly $20 billion by the end of the year. California's unemployment pay is $450 a week for a maximum of 26 weeks. Businesses fought the bill because they said they would pay additional taxes annually to repay Californians' loan from the federal government. The WGA and SAG-AFTRA lobbied for the expanded benefits, saying that they would help workers pay their bills. While members rely on side jobs and strike funds to stay afloat, that income dwindles the longer a strike goes on. The 148-day Hollywood writers strike ended with after WGA members ratified a new contract. Actors and crew members represented by SAG-AFTRA have been on strike for more than 100 days. Democrats have expressed support for labor unions ahead of the 2024 elections. Labor unions, including the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Communication Workers of America, and the Alamagated Transit Union, have endorsed Schiff for Senate, while other unions have endorsed his main Democratic rivals in the race. During a debate this month in Los Angeles, Schiff, alongside with Senate candidates Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, and Katie Porter, Democrat of Irvine, disagreed with Newsom's decision to veto the bill to provide striking workers unemployment benefits. He mentioned during that event he was working on federal legislation. When they go and strike for better work and better wages for themselves and others, they need to have unemployment compensation because of striking for all workers, Schiff said in the debate. That was shift to offer bill on striking workers' pay by Queenie Wong from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. All right, here is something else with regards to the actors' strike. This is from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. Actors' union's chief is resolute. I will not cave, SAG after President Fran Drescher says, by Meg James and Wendy Lee. Last summer, Fran Drescher became one of America's most formidable labor leaders. In taking 160,000 members of SAG-AFTRA on strike against major, the major Hollywood studios and, account, and accusing chief executives of putting Wall Street and greed ahead of workers in a fiery July speech, the union president, best known for his sassy nasal voice TV show character in The Nanny, stepped into the role of a modern-day Norma Ray. But now, as SAG-AFTRA marks its uh, SAG-AFTRA members mark its 100 days on strike, the unlikely champion of the underdog finds herself in a tough position. Actors and crew members, some who have burned through their savings, are desperate to return to work. A week ago, the very CEOs whom Drescher publicly upbraided as being greedy, suggesting one was an ignoramus, hit pause on the negotiations, dashing hopes for a feel-good October ending to laborers to Hollywood, Hollywood's historic labor unrest, 
that has idled TV and movie production since last spring. A-list actors, including George Clooney, Ben Affleck, and Scarlett Johansson, recently approached SAG-AFTRA leaders to discuss ways to resolve the strike. The stars proposed eliminating the current $1 billion cap on SAG-AFTRA membership dues to raise funds for struggling actors. But the proposal, according to the guide, the Guild wouldn't resolve the contract standoff with the studios. We have to figure this out, and we have to do the right thing, Drescher said last week in an interview with the Times. On Saturday, the union and the companies began bargaining, began their uh, bargaining arm, uh, the, the bargaining arm, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers announced that the two sides would resume contract talks Tuesday, sparking hope hopes the actor strike could be resolved before the holidays. Company executives had initially thought they could quickly reach a truce with SAG-AFTRA when talks resumed October 2nd, the first meeting between the two groups since before the strike began on July 14th. In late September, the AMPTP finalized a new contract with the Writers Guild of America, which was approved by 99% of writers who voted. That deal, which included higher minimum pay, higher residuals, and a bonus for successful streaming shows, was intended to provide a framework for a new pact with actors. But SAG-AFTRA's push for streaming companies to share revenue from their subscription fees prompted last week's breakdown in the talks. Drescher has repeatedly implored the senior executives who have led the negotiations, Walt Disney Company CEO Bob Iger, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav, Netflix Company CEO Ted Sarandos, and NBC Universal Studio Group Chairman Donna Langley to spread more of the, their company's wealth to improve the lives of working actors. I'm always saying to them, it could be the, her the heroes in this, Drescher said. The eyes of the industry are looking at you. Lean into what is hard, but what is right. Initially, SAG-AFTRA asked for 2% of all streaming revenue, which was flatly rejected. Last week, the Guild proposed receiving about 57 cents a year for every streaming subscriber worldwide. The companies balked, saying that the amount that amounted to an additional $500 million to $800 million plus on top of the increased res residuals, uh, higher minimum fees, and streaming bonuses that the AMPTP had already offered SAG-AFTRA. Rich Greenfield, a partner in media and technology analyst at Lightshed Partners, called the actor's request absurd. They want to charge based on subscribers regardless of the revenue or profit when they are already getting paid up front, regardless of whether the streaming content is successful, Greenfield said. Drescher counted, countered that companies must recognize that Hollywood workers, including some actors, cannot make a living anymore. The industry's move to streaming has created an economic dystopia, Drescher said, because streaming services typically order far fewer episodes of TV series than traditional linear television does. Most streaming services also do not release detailed viewership data, leaving artists in the dark as to whether they are being properly paid. The members are suffocating in this vacuum-sealed box, Drescher said, and she said she's not budging on important deal terms. My members need something significant in terms of compensation, specifically in streaming video on demand, she said. I will not cave, and I will not let them down, no matter what vitriol or intimidation tactics the companies choose to throw at me. Drescher brings an unconventional style to the labor fight. 
A survivor of cancer and of sexual assault, the sitcom star has approached negotiations with the goal of encouraging others to bring out the best in themselves. She carries a heart-shaped plush toy with a smiley face, a gift from an 11-year-old fan, and props it on the negotiating table where she sits opposite Iger. Dresher offers Buddhist incantations, and during one tenth session, she instructed various negotiators to dial it down. Dresher 66 then shared a poignant story about a conversation she had with her 94-year-old father. She's been extremely effective at, an extremely effective advocate on behalf of our members, and she has helped convey the importance of several of these proposals and why they are essential to our members and their ability to make a living in the industry, SAG after Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland said. But Dresher's rhetoric fueled very high expectations among union members. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble, Dresser told members in July, minutes after the Guild's board voted unanimously to call the strike. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines and big business who cares more about Wall Street than you and your family. At some point, you have to say no. Her words touched a chord amid a nationwide rise in labor action. Through the summer and fall, Actors and striking WGA members were joined on picket lines by nurses, county workers, teamsters, and members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which represent film set, work, set workers. We are all suffering for this cause, said camera operator Gabriel Diniz, a member of IATSE Local 600, while picketing outside Disney's headquarters in Burbank earlier this week. But what helps one group is going to help the others. Company executives are frustrated. Despite be, uh, making concessions to SAG-AFTRA, some executives recognize the labor action has swelled into a proxy for a larger political movement uh, to correct America's wealth inequality. The companies are also in a jam. While the WGA strike started in May, some executives are secretly relieved because the film and TV production shutdowns allowed their companies to save hundreds of millions of dollars at a time when their finances were under, under strain. As negotiations resume this week, the two sides are hoping to find a path to, to a deal. As companies are pressing for SAG-AFTRA to give up on its revenue-sharing demands, Sorandos, the Netflix co-chief, lamented earlier this month that SAG-AFTRA's counteroffer on revenue-sharing was a bridge too far. The industry fears that a walkout that extends through the years the year, the year's end could deeply damage the theatrical movie business, which has not recovered from the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. Since May, 45,000 jobs in the entertainment and sound recording industry have been erased from payrolls, reflecting the impact of the labor disputes, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In California, the twin strikes are expected to cause about $6.5 billion in economic damage, said Todd Holmes, Associate Professor of Entertainment Media Management at Cal State Northridge. If the SAG after strike continues into late November, the total economic fallout will rise to more than $8 billion, Holmes estimates. The strained situation has prompted some second guessing of how SAG after leaders have handled the bargaining. You're not winning an Oscar for this negotiation, Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel said last week at a Bloomberg Media conference in an attempt to prod the two sides to resume bargaining sessions. Actor Kristen Schaal, the last man on Earth, Bob's Burgers, said this week while picketing at Disney 
that she can see why there is so much frustration and pushback from studios. I bet they're grumbling. Fran is standing up to them and they're not used to that, Shal said. This is a historical time. The business has changed and these executives need to see that. Dresher's Moxie landed her on network TV. More than 30 years ago, she spotted a CBS executive while on a transatlantic flight and made an initial pitch about portraying a door-to-door cosmetic salesperson who needs work and takes a job as a nanny. Then LA Times TV critic Howard Rosenberg wrote in 1993 that Dresher had become the most distinctive voice in prime time. CBS initially wanted the character to be Italian, but Dresher refused. The nanny is Jewish and proud of it, Dresser wrote in a 1994 essay in the Times. I create Fran Fine based very closely upon my mother, myself, and all the wonderful and rich characters I grew up in, grew up around in Flushing, Queens. In the series, Fran Fine nudges a group of uptight chargers, the Sheffields, into different ways of thinking. Perhaps it's a bit like her current role as she struggles opposite the studio chiefs. I look to a Buddhist philosophy of trying to elevate people's thinking so that they're not so greed-driven, Dresher said. Dresher was first elected SAG-AFTRA president two years ago in a closely watched contest that highlighted long-standing divisions within the guild. There were some early missteps. Dresher, who was vaccinated from COVID-19, also raised concerns about studio employees requiring workers on film and TV to show and TV shows to be vaccinated and suggested that the union review new evidence about the effectiveness of vaccines and boosters. What's next? We can't work without a monkeypox vaccine, she said. She called a special meeting to discuss the vaccine mandates last year, but the board voted to take no action. Dresher also raised eyebrows when she flew to Italy in the middle of negotiations to appear at a fashion show. The union said she was fulfilling a scheduled commitment to work as a brand ambassador for Dolce & Cabana. As soon as the strike started, Fran rose to the occasion, said Jeff Torres, a SAG-AFTRA strike captain. She's been able to unite people. She's someone that we can uh, rally around because she is speaking truth to power. Dresher was re-elected this year with 81% of the vote. On the picket lines, Guild members have saluted Dresher's strong stand during negotiations. There have been times in my career where SAG has sort of rolled over in negotiations, said actress Shaw said. This is the first time that it's like, woo, SAG is standing strong. In The Nanny, Dresher's character winds up marrying her employer, a theater producer and the family patriarch. But it's not clear what will what it will take to unite Dresher and media executives. Andrea Schneider, director of Kukin Program for Conf- Conflict Resolution at Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law said the suspension of the talks earlier this month when the studios walked away was a classic negotiation ploy. We are in Hollywood and this is good acting. I'm offended. I'm appalled. There's no way we could have ever given up this money, Schneider said of the studios, but they made progress and I don't think either side wants to throw that away. That was Actors Union's Chief is Resolute by Meg James and Wendy Lee. From the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. All right, we have two other articles here from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Swastikas on OC school locker are under investigation as a hate crime. Officials report the Corona Del Mar vandalism to police in Newport Beach by Noah Goldberg. 
Newport Beach Police are investigating the tagging of swastikas on a locker at Corona Del Mar High School as a hate crime, the Newport Mesa Unified School District said. The school district became aware of the vandalism earlier this month and reported it to the police department. This behavior is unacceptable and will not be tolerated in our schools, said Annette Franco, a spokesperson for the district. We are investigating and have met with the Jewish Federation of Orange County to determine the next steps to, in helping our school community to be better citizens. Immediate action is being taken as we develop longer-term plans. A spokesperson for the Newport Beach Police Department said detectives were investigating. The incident comes weeks after the start of the Israel-Hamas war. The school district has a history of anti-Semitic incidents. In 2019, police were notified about a group of high school students drinking alcohol at a house party, took a photograph giving a Nazi salute around a table with red plastic cups arranged in the shape of a swastika. The students at that party attended Newport Harbor, Estanza, and Costa Mesa High Schools, not Corona Del Mar High School. Reports of hate incidents have increased over the last few years in Orange County, surging from 41 incidents in 2021 to 103 in 2022, according to a county report. Brian Levin, founder of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino, said there has been an increase in anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim incidents since the start of the war, though the data are very preliminary. Levin said there were seven, seven anti-Semitic hate crimes reported in Los Angeles between August, October 6th and October 16th this year, compared with, the same, with three in the same period last year. We have seen increases in anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish hate. More of the increases are occurring with non-criminal incidents and anti-Jewish incidents for now seem to be going up more, Levin said. That was swastikas on OC school locker are under investigation as a hate crime by Noah Goldberg. And this other one says U.S. flag is set ablaze at Jewish family's house. I'm really scared, said resident of West Hills home who also displayed a mezuzah by Grace Tuhi. A man approached a West Hills home Saturday night and appeared to set a displayed U.S. flag on fire, sparking a small blaze and suspicion that the suspect was motivated by hate. The incident was caught on a home surveillance system. Officials are investigating it as a possible hate crime and arson, according to Los Angeles police officer Drake Madison. Madison said it wasn't clear what prompted the hate crime investigation, but noted that the, reported meant, the report mentioned the American flag and Jewish symbols outside the home. The case was still under investigation as of Monday morning without any suspects identified or arrested, Madison said. I'm scared. I'm really scared, said Adas, a mother of four who lives in the home. She requested that her full name not be published out of concern for her safety and that of her family. She said a portion of her garage and roof were damaged in the fire before someone driving by stopped and, at, at the sight of the flames and pulled, put out the fire with a hose. Hadass said no one in her family was home at the time and no one was injured. Thank God for that, Hadass said. She said she was headed home with her children Saturday evening when she got a notification from their surveillance system that someone was in their front yard. She couldn't immediately see anyone in the surveillance camera shot, but noticed what appeared to be flames in the front yard. She called 911 and had her daughter call a neighbor. 
Before firefighters or her neighbor arrived, the passerby had responded to the flames, she said. Later, police officers came. The fire started at about 8 p.m. Saturday, Madison said. Adas doesn't know why someone would set the flag on fire, but said she worries it may have to do with their Jewish faith, noting her family has a large mezuzah and enclosed scroll with Hebrew scripture that many Jews place on doorposts outside their home. Anti-Semitic incidents were already on the rise in the U.S. before the Israel-Hamas war broke out this month, which has since prompted fears about increased violence against both Jewish and Palestinian people. Officials say it's too soon to say for certain if anti-Jewish or anti-Muslim crimes have increased since the war began. Hadass also noted that their house was the only one in the neighborhood displaying a U.S. flag, something her neighbors are now determined to change. All the neighbors ordered one, Hadass said. All of us are going to put out an American flag. That was U.S. flag set ablaze at Jewish family's house by Grace Tohi from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. All right, let's conclude with an article or two from Bayahad Together from the Jewish National Fund USA, Your Voice in Israel, and something from the Together campaign, Campaign All-Star Chuck Kaffenstock, Leading for the Future of the Jewish Homeland by Kylie Ora Lobel. As the son of two Holocaust survivors from Poland, Chuck Kapenschak grew up and grew up keenly aware of the importance of the Jewish homeland. Chuck's mother and father met after the war, got married in Germany in 1948, moved to Israel, and Chuck was born in Jaffa. Because of his family background and his deep love for his homeland, Chuck, who lives in Chicago, decided to become involved with his local chapter of Jewish National Fund USA in 2004. I had the never again mentality, he said. It was very important for me to join Jewish National Fund USA to get the message across to my kids and grandkids. This is our homeland. That is the most vital message I can say to anybody. Chuck and his wife Robin quickly became active supporters of Jewish National Fund USA. They raised more than a million dollars for various initiatives, including the development of the Gaza Envelope region. From 2021 to 2023, Chuck served as the Illinois board president. My wife and I were one of the first 13 people who joined the Gaza Envelope Task Force, he said. For every dollar we put in there, the government or municipality matched it. We built resilience and trauma centers and provided animal therapy. We helped the community grow and stay safe. Another organizational initiative Chuck was passionate about was Givot Bar, a town in Israel's south that was not yet developed at the time. When we were initially introduced to it, they had five caravans there, and they wanted to build 800 homes, he said. When I joined the Chicago board, I said, why don't we make this a Chicago project? We were then joined by Miami. A few years later, Chuck led a mission to the small southern town and saw 600 families living in the region. That was a very prideful thing, he said. Ellen Spira Hadenbach, National Campaign Director for the Midwest, said that, said that as president, Chuck was all about uh, creating community. He also never took no for an answer. He never sees an obstacle, he said. She said, he sees opportunity in everything. He is not afraid at all. Chuck sees the big picture. He's a real leader. Chief e uh, Development Officer Rick Krosnick echoed a similar sentiment. Chuck is a true investor in JNF USA, he said. 
He has brought strategic thinking to everything he's done with us. He wants to roll up his sleeves and help problem solve. For Chuck, who is moving to Naples, Florida, the work with Jewish National Fund USA will not end. He and Robin already joined the local chapter and held a parlor meeting. He hopes to inspire the younger generation to contribute their time and energy to the Jewish state as well. My ultimate goal is to make sure the diaspora does not abandon Israel, he said. Jewish National Fund USA does such amazing outreach for the land and people of Israel. I hope it stays that way. And that was campaign all-star Chuck Kaffenstock leading for the future of the Jewish homeland by Kylie Ora Lobel from the Together campaign section. That's from Biyahad Together from the Jewish National Fund USA, a publication from the Jewish National Fund. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. See you all next week, everybody. Stay safe.